0: Well, this evening we are looking at Psalm 51 and we're doing that in this series, thinking about prayer and this evening thinking particularly about praying for God's forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you, but generally sin is not something we particularly like talking about or thinking about. Perhaps in the abstract, we can just about cope. But when it gets to the real nitty-gritty of reality of our own lives, our own sin, it's not something we like thinking about. It's not something we like talking about, either with those close to us, to those in our church families, or even with God. We tend to shy away from talking about sin. But it's something that impacts us all. The Bible tells us we're all sinners. We're all in need of forgiveness. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this evening. What does it look like to be praying for God's forgiveness? Now, in a wonderful, I guess you call divine coincidence, we're looking at this subject this evening, having looked this morning in Ephesians at what it means, the salvation that we have from sin. And if you're a follower of Jesus here this evening, I want you to have completely clear in your mind, as we work through the psalm, what we saw this morning. That by God's grace, your sins have been completely forgiven in Christ. Your salvation is sure and certain. So with that in mind, Let's read Psalm 51 together. You can find it on page 474 of the Church Bible, so do turn that up, page 474, Psalm 51. Psalm 51 reads, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray to God. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you that you are a God who delights to hear our prayers. Father, we thank you that you know each one of us, that you know our hearts, that you know our struggles, that you know our sins, that there is nothing hidden from you. Lord, as we consider this evening our sinfulness and our need of your forgiveness, Lord, we recognize these are not comfortable things to think about, but that they are very real things to think about. That in this room there are likely some of us who are burdened with guilt. That there are some of us who have never properly considered our sinfulness. And others of us who have grown complacent to our sin. Lord, each of us struggle with sin in different ways. And in different ways have felt the pain that sin causes. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who deals with us in the messiness and reality of everyday life. Open our hearts and our minds to you this evening, we pray, as you speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the events that form the backdrop for this psalm are set out in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You see, good, great King David, the man who'd slayed Goliath, the one to whom God had promised, as we saw last week, to build an everlasting kingdom, through his line has seriously, seriously messed up. It all kicked off one late afternoon. David arose from his couch and was walking around the roof of the king's house. And he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now rather than avert his eyes, he decides to make inquiries as to who this woman is. It transpires she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Undeterred, King David sends for her, and he sleeps with her. Things then begin to unravel. Bathsheba is pregnant, and David is the father. And her husband is away with the army fighting the Ammonites. So David hatches a cover-up. He'll call her husband back from the battlefield in the hope that Uriah will sleep with his wife on his few days of home leave and will think the baby is his. The plan fails. You see, Uriah is too noble to sleep with his wife while the rest of his battalion are on the front line. He sleeps in the servants' quarters. So, David reaches... For Plan B. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield, carrying a letter for his commander, which unbeknown to Uriah, was his death warrant. The letter read Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And that's what happened. So with Uriah gone, David quickly moves to marry the widowed Bathsheba and hopes he's got away with it all. But his actions weren't hidden from God. 2 Samuel 11 ends with these words. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so God sent Nathan the prophet to David to confront him with his sin and as we can see from the introduction to this psalm which is part of the original text this was the context in which the psalm was written it says a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone in to Bathsheba and as we look at the psalm what's important to grasp is both that it's intensely personal this is written by King David in this very real, very particular context as he faces up to what he's done, as he faces up to his sin. But it's also meant for a wider audience. Did you see that? It begins, to the choir master. It was written to be a hymn to be sung, not just by David, but by the wider group of God's people. So they could join with David in singing this psalm together because it can teach us about what it means to pray for God's forgiveness in the reality of our sin. If you're looking at the service sheet, you will see there are four headings. Uh, The good news is I'm skipping over number one. Um, We'll pick that up as we go through um, and focus on the remaining three. So we're going to look first at confessing our sin, confessing our sin to God. Look with me at verses 1 to 6 of the psalm again. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now there are three things I want to draw out here in David's approaching God with his sin. First of all, David owns his sin. Did you notice how he recognises it in those first three verses? He talks about my transgressions, verse 1. My iniquity, my sin, my transgressions, my sin. He owns it. He recognises this sin is his and his alone. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't seek to downplay it or to justify himself. There's not none of the kind of often the politicians, you know, mistakes were made. I'm sorry if what I have done has upset you. I was just tired and I allowed things to get on top of me. If you hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have responded in this way. There's no buts. There's no attempt to justify himself. He comes humbly before God. He recognizes his sin. He says, this is my sin. This is me. Do we do that with our sin? Do we take ownership of our sin? Or are we trying to explain it away, to try to minimize it or seek to justify ourselves? Instead, let's come repentantly, humbly before God, owning and recognising our sin. And secondly, David recognises what his sin is. I don't know what you thought of verse 4 when we read it. At first I read it, it's quite surprising. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You still think, you only, hang on a minute, have we forgotten about Bathsheba and Uriah over there? What's going on? I think the point here is that first and foremost, the primary person hurt by our sin is God. Because sin is an action against God. It's doing something which displeases God. Because if we think of sin Merely sort of breaking some arbitrary rule somewhere. Then we're missing the point. Sin is a relational act against the God who made us. And it reflects our heart attitude towards Him. And this I think is very countercultural. Our culture, what does it say? It says, if this doesn't hurt anyone, then it's fine. And I think often, even as Christians, we can be tempted to buy into that lie. We justify our actions to ourselves or we downplay in our hearts the seriousness of our sin on the basis that, well, it's not hurt anyone. But instead, let's grasp that our sin is first and foremost against God. Our sin displeases him. It grieves him. So I guess the question is: Do you and I, do we view our sin, as our, the world around us views it, or do we view it as God views it? Now, let's not misunderstand this verse. The verse is not trying to say Bathsheba and Uriah and the baby weren't hurt by David's actions. They were. This is not downplaying or diminishing in any way the pain of sin on others. But rather it's emphasising how our sin pains the God who made us. I think often we can be fairly good at seeing how our sin has an impact on others. Or we can see, looking at something that's happened, the impact that someone's actions has had on someone else. But I think often we can have a very distorted view of actually how our sin grieves the God who made us. Thirdly, David recognises his sinful nature. Look again at verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David is acknowledging here that his, he's naturally sinful, that his sinful tendencies go back right to the beginning of his existence. For David, the fact that he committed adultery, the fact that he orchestrated Uriah's murder, are expressions of something far, far worse. That he's by nature that way, that we all are. See what David recognized that these specific actions, they weren't blips in an otherwise upright and good life, but they were outworkings of a deeper-seated sinfulness. And in verse six, he recognizes that God's focus too, is on that inward being, on the heart. Perhaps we can think of it this way. It's always dangerous to do a sort of visual experiment. But here we go. I've got a bottle of water. Um, I'm going to stand over here and I'm going to shake it a bit. Now, what happens? The floor gets wet. And I to say, well, why Why did the water come out the bottle and make the floor wet? Now, probably you're thinking, well, because you shook the bottle, you idiot. And that's true. But part of the reason is because there's water in this bottle. And and like our sin, we can often, we can see what's happened. We can see what has caused the sin to occur. We can see the impact of that sin. But we ignore what's going on here. We, we ignore the fact that actually that sin has come out of something within us. We need to recognize that our sinful actions are not some isolated event, but rather they're, some, they're, they're a symptom of that deeper heart issue. We need to recognize the water in the bottle, not just the fact that some of it came out. And this, this should impact how we, how we think about our sin and how we confess it. First of all, we need to be clear of what it is we've done. Not have some sort of vague sense of our sin. I think there's often the danger where we can come to think, I should, I should confess my sins. And we do it in a sort of vague way, which if someone sort of came up to us and said, so what in particular were you asking for forgiveness for there? In that last week, I probably struggle to know. We don't have that even sense. We think, I'm sure some water has fallen out of that bottle today, but I'm not sure when or why or how. But again, we need to also not just see the specific action, the shaking and the water coming out, it's the extent of our sin. So those things in our life where the sin happens, whether that's we're being short-tempered with our loved ones, whether we're being dishonest at work, whether we're sitting at home late at night watching porn, yes, those things are wrong. Yes, they are sinful. Yes, we need to confess them. But in a sense, that's not the extent of our sin. We need to look deeper. And he said, wrestle with the deeper heart issue that lies behind those sinful actions. We need to be honest and real with God about our sin, about our struggles, about our heart, about what our inner being is like. That's what David's doing here. He has in mind a clear view of his sin, but he's not shrinking it down to the specifics. So in some way, As we confess our sins to God, let's grasp that we're sinners. Let's grasp the seriousness of our sin. Seeing our sin as God sees our sin. And let's be real and honest with God about our sin. And then we come and we seek forgiveness. Seek forgiveness based on the character of God. Because you see in the psalm, what's the basis that David appeals to God? Now David had done quite a lot of good things in his life. He could have kicked off, verse 1, he could have said, Have mercy on me, O God, in light of the way that I have rescued and ruled your people well. He could have said, Have mercy on me, O God, and I promise I won't muck up again. But that's not what he says. He says, verse 1 Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David's appeal is based on the character of God, not on the basis of anything that he can bring and he can offer, not on the basis of past behavior or future promised behavior, not on the basis of extenuating circumstances. He came in humility. He draws on this more later on in the psalm. Look with me at verse 16 and 17. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He recognised that there was nothing that he could offer, nothing that he could bring that would be sufficient. So he came the only way he could, with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, and appealed to God on the basis of his love and his mercy. And When we come to God, we come repentant, we come broken. It is that spirit that we approach him. But surely there's a problem here. As David acknowledges himself in verse 4, God would be entirely just and blameless to punish him for what he's done. Indeed, the question almost rises how can a just God ignore what David has done? David has raped and murdered, he's lied. He's despised the word of the Lord. He's scorned God. God himself has said that his actions displease him. Surely God cannot just ignore all that. He can't just say, well, David's come and he's asked very nicely and he's recognised that I'm loving and merciful. That's fine, I'll just ignore all that. And yet, we read in 2 Samuel that after David confesses, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. What does Nathan, the prophet, reply? He says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And the question is, how can a just God do that? How can that be right? How can God do that and be righteous? Well, Romans chapter 3 tells us, Paul writes, God put Christ forward as a propitiation, that is to satisfy God's wrath by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So in this case he passed over David's sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So while it would have been shocking if God had ignored David's sin, he didn't. God knew and had planned that centuries after David lived, God's own son, the sinless Jesus Christ, would die in David's place. That David's sins would be counted as Christ's sins. And that Christ's righteousness would be counted as David's righteousness. God could justly pass over what David had done. He could pass over his sin and forgive him. Because Christ was going to pay the penalty his sins deserved. And so it is with us. We live the other side of the cross from David. We look back at the cross of Christ. But we're all sinners. And the only means by which me and you and each of us can be forgiven our sins is the same as for David. Through trusting in the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon that cross. We come to God seeking his forgiveness entirely on the basis of his character, on the basis of his steadfast love, on the basis of his justice and mercy, shown to us in Jesus Christ. I think there's three implications that I just want to briefly touch on here. Firstly, don't fall for the devil's lie that God won't accept you for what you've done. Look at David. Look at his sheet. There is no limit to the sin that Christ's death can deal with. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, humbly turn to God and seek his forgiveness offered in Christ Jesus. You will not be turned away. And secondly, don't think you can receive God's forgiveness any other way. Don't think you can ignore or reject Jesus, but that everything will be alright because you're pretty good And God is loving and God is merciful and he will let you into heaven in any event. God is always loving. God is always merciful. God is always just. But to expect God to overlook your sins, however minor you consider them to be, however generally good you think you are, Is to ask God to suspend his justice. To ask him to stop being just. And he can't do that. And he won't do that. In Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, we see God's love, we see his mercy, we see his justice. We see them in perfect harmony. It is only through trusting in Jesus that we can receive God's forgiveness. And thirdly, as Christians, don't allow the devil to drive you away from God. It's easy to fall into the mindset where we're so ashamed of our sin, we're so ashamed of what we've done, of how we've messed up again, That we feel we can't come to God and seek his forgiveness. It's that natural human instinct. If we upset someone, we try and avoid them. Don't do that with God. Remember his character. Remember that your standing before God does not depend on your performance. Even on your best days, you can only approach God on the basis of his grace. And so too you can approach him on your bad days. Draw near to God by his grace, seeking his forgiveness in a spirit of repentance. Thirdly, let us seek renewal. Look with me at verses 7 to 12. Verses 7 to 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now before we dive in, I just want to say in passing, don't misunderstand verse 11. David here, he's acknowledging again that God would be entirely just to cast him from his presence. He would be entirely just to remove his spirit from him as we saw this morning, if you are a Christian, by faith you are united to Christ and his spirit forever. Nothing can separate that. So what is it that David is seeking in these verses? He's seeking to be cleansed from the inside. He's seeking a new, a clean heart. His focus is on his inner being, his inmost self. And he recognised that the issue was deeper than just his outward actions. He recognised that the solution needs to go further than just helping him not do the same sinful things again. That is not just enough to address the symptoms, but to get to the heart of the issue. Our sinful heart And in Jesus Christ, that is what is on offer. For those who trust in Jesus, his blood shed on that cross cleanses us from all our sin. We're given a new heart. We have his spirit living within us, renewing us, transforming us more and more into his likeness and image. Our sin has been dealt with once and for all. But we will still struggle with sin. We are a new person with a new glorious future to look forward to not one of just condemnation, but one of eternity with God in glory. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is what God is freely offering in Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, it is a question how how do we think about this as Christians? Now that our sin has been dealt with, now that we know that Jesus has paid the punishment, is it time to move on? To forget about sin? We need to receive God's forgiveness daily. Remember the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. The Apostle Paul writes to, the, to believers in 1 John. He says, If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of us need forgiveness daily. No matter how mature a believer you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, and this is not about dragging up old sin that has been dealt with. It is daily recognising our sinfulness and laying hold afresh each day of God's grace in complete assurance of our salvation. It's coming to him with a repentant heart. Recognising the ways that we have lived that displease him. I think for me personally, as I've been preparing this, this is one of the areas I've been, it's been most challenged about. I, I don't come before God and confess my sins as regularly as I should. Perhaps that's true for you too. And I think more generally, there can be a danger that as Christians we can become complacent about our sin. That because God has graciously forgiven us our sins, that because forgiveness has cost us nothing, it's almost like we forget it has a cost at all. And yet it costs Christ his life. So we come before God seeking his renewal within us. Practically praying that God would, by his spirit, continue to change us, continue to renew us as he has promised to do. Praying like David that we would be filled with the joy of God's salvation and for a spirit that is joyfully willing to follow God's word. As he talks about in verses 8 and 12 pray not just about the specific sins with which we're struggling, but be praying that by his Spirit he would enable us to overcome the underlying sinful desires within us, and that sin would increasingly lose its appeal as we grow closer and closer to our Saviour. And as we see our life being transformed in that way by the Spirit, that's going to have an impact outwardly. And that's the way David closes this psalm. Look at verses 12 to 19. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That inward transformation leads to an outward transformation in our lives. As we are set free from our sin, as we grow are renewed more and more, That has an impact on the outside. Two related ways. Firstly, verse 13, in teaching and telling others about the forgiveness of sins that is available in Christ. That's you and me, as sinners, sharing with other sinners the good news. As someone put it, it is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It's not because we've got it sorted. It's not because we're superior. It's because we know where to turn to get it started. And secondly, verse 15, in praising God, remembering how little we deserve and how much we have received. Because the more we grasp of our sinfulness, the more we grasp that nothing we deserve but God's judgment the more we grasp the complete and total forgiveness that God has given us in Christ, the more we grasp the renewed person that we are in Christ, the more we are filled with that joy of salvation, the more our heart overflows in praise to God, and the more we'll long to tell others of Him. And the more real and the more honest with God we are about our sin the easier we'll find it to be more honest and real and open with one another about our sin and our struggles. The more there we can speak the truth in love to one another out of the overflow of what God has done for us. So as we close, Let's remember David's sin was real. Those events really did happen. His need of forgiveness was real and it was acute. And your sin and my sin is real. God's displeasure at our sin is real. But wonderfully, Christ's death on that cross is real. The forgiveness and the new life that comes through trusting in him is real. It's permanent and it's unshakable. Can I encourage each of us this evening that as we go home, that we'd find some time later to pray God for forgiveness for some of us this might be the first time we'll have asked God for forgiveness ask humbly ask confidently knowing that he will forgive your sins through Jesus for some of us as Christians we may be Christians but we've got out of the habit of praying for forgiveness Make tonight the night you start again. Do so with complete assurance. being absolutely confident in the grace of God. But come to him. Lay your heart in all its messiness in its current state before him. Knowing he has dealt with your sin on that cross. And perhaps for some of us we might have been challenged about a particular aspect of sin in our life. Ways that perhaps we've become complacent to our sin. Bring these to your Heavenly Father. Seek His forgiveness. Seek His renewal, trusting in His grace. For each of us, let us be honest and let us be real about our sin with the God who loves us, the God who sent His Son to pay the punishment that our sins deserved. Seek his forgiveness and live our lives transformed by that forgiveness. Let's pray. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. This, the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost, we stand forgiven at the cross. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he became sin for us that we stand forgiven at the cross. Lord, help each of us to grasp our very real need of your forgiveness and your gracious provision of it through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.